Hey, folks. Hey there, cowpokes. <laughs> and welcome to Take Me Into the Ball Game. Take me into the quirk. Take me into the eccentric intellectual wing of Major League Baseball, please. My co host has that covered because that is Eric Gildy. Hi there. I don't think, what did I say, cowpokes? I don't think that's going to be a keeper. I think Cowpokes was great. I don't know that it totally applies to this film. Um, my name is Ellen Adair, and we are two actors who decided many years ago that we would... Many, many. I was a cowpoke. <laughs> yeah, we were, we were mere cowpokes <laughs> at that time. Uh, decided that we would watch baseball movies, and we would grade them on the 20 to 80 scouting scale used for baseball prospects. Sure did. If you are not familiar with the 20 to 80 scouting scale, we're going to just go over it in a little bit uh, so that you are up to speed for the time that we get to reviewing this movie. But this week, we are talking about Spaceman. Spaceman, the man from space, Spaceman. This is a 2016 film written and directed by Brett Rapkin and was adapted from the semi-autobiographical autobiography, <laughs> the, uh, the sort of fun memoir of Spaceman Bill Lee. Um, the memoir is called The Wrong Stuff and was co-written with Richard Lally, who he's written a couple of books with. <laughs> but anywho, a lot of Rapkin's more notable work is within documentaries, actually. I believe this was his first kind of like feature non-documentary. Like He did a documentary on Bill Lee before he did, this. He did. He's also worked on stuff like Baseball's Golden Age, Football Freakonomics, and Welcome to Dodger Town. So his work on the documentary um, led to the sort of like making of, of this. And uh, the film stars Josh Duhamel of Transformers fame. I think he's a great actor. I don't mean that as too much of a burn. But it stars him as Spaceman Bill Lee and kind of follows, in just the sort of brief synopsis version, follows him getting fired from the Expos for walking out on the team after a teammate got let go. Um, although he was just such a handful that I think they were looking for an excuse anyway. Yeah, probably. And the movie sort of starts from there. And takes us kind of through this process of him looking to land on another team, kind of confronting the possibility that he might not, and ultimately kind of like embracing baseball in whatever form he can take it in moving forward into, uh, you know, the future years, many, many future years, actually. Indeed, yes, because Bill Lee in his 70s is like still pitching today for the Savannah Bananas and for some... Other teams, yeah. It's, it's it's wild. He's it, an amazing human being. Yeah, 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 yeah. Speaking of amazing human beings, the cast also has such talents as Ernie Hudson, W. Earl Brown, and Sterling K. Brown. 
Wonderful. So, so wonderful. Yeah, I have some things to say about the amount of Sterling K. Brown that is in this movie, but we'll get to that in a later category. Ooh, stay tuned. See, we've got, we had like the teaser and then the cowpokes. I think one could argue was actually a brilliant misdirect. It was a brilliant misdirect, yes, <laughs> for people who hadn't read what the film was going to be. And then, as the introduction comes to a conclusion, a cliffhanger. <laughs> About Sterling K. Brown. About Sterling K. Brown. <laughs> and my opinions about the amount of Sterling K. Brown that is in this movie. Oh, stay tuned. I am so incredibly excited to talk about Bill Lee, who is obviously, objectively, one of the top two most delightful people in Ken Burns' baseball. The other one, obviously, objectively being Buck O'Neill. Like, oh, yeah. Billy is just so delightful in general, and his delightfulness is a beacon even in the midst of something as wonderful as Ken Burns' baseball. It's really like a fight for third. <laughs> yes. You've got Billy Crystal over here. You've got George Will over there. <laughs> I, I feel like George Will is somewhere towards the bottom for me personally. Oh, in comes Bob Costas with a folding chair. What a fight. So, for those of you who are not familiar with the 20 to 80 scouting scale and might just be joining us because we've moved over to Pitcher List or might be joining us because you are Bill Lee enthusiasts, <laughs> the most important thing to know about the 20 to 80 scouting scale is that 50 is average on the scale. However, that is an average major league player. So even though the scale is used by scouts to apply to prospects, if you find a prospect that you think is going to play at a major league level, that's actually, baseball fans, as we all know, a pretty pretty good prospect. Yeah, yeah. I will not add any more with this. It's a good kind of average. Yeah. So... Below that, we have 45. That's kind of like fringy, but can play. 40 is like the up and down from the majors a little bit. 30 and 20 are like, this guy does not have this particular skill, whether that's, you know, his arm or his hit tool or whatever it is. It would be like, I mean, no, probably worse. I was imagining like, it would be like me, but I think that I would actually crack through that floor and find yet lower numbers. Yeah, people ask me all the time, why is it 20 to 80? And I, I'm sort of like, because I assume that we civilians are the 10 and the zero that is unrepresented by the oh, scale. Oh, yeah. That's, look, Branch Ricky came up with the scale. Branch. I uh, consider that his name is Branch. He's rustling behind you. <laughs> He's <always> rustling <laughs> behind you. Um, so I don't know that that has anything to do with Branch Ricky's thoughts in his development of this, but that has been my own sort of folklore around it. And with a hundred, you got your Spider-Man, you got your Superman. Oh, right. that, that's your Marvel superhero area. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So before we get to that, obviously 55 is above average. 60 is excellent. 70 is like a superstar and 80 is like a hall of fame level talent. And as I just mentioned uh, over that, becomes sort of entries into, I think, more the Marvel Universe than the DC Universe. Mm. But, um, you know, take your pick, choose your poison. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or or even like, you know, they're able to load in skills like the Matrix or something like that. <laughs> I Indeed. thought you were going to be like image comics or, you know, just pick a, pick a more... I don't know enough about those things <laughs> to make smart references. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's all good. The important thing is, this is all crystal clear now. Indeed, yes. 
So for our longtime listeners, we're going to be moving some of our tools around in order to do a two-part structure, which is what our benevolent leaders at PictureList would like us to do. So please join us for both parts of our discussion of Spaceman in order to get all of the categories that you know and love. However, as some of the best categories are in the second part. Some of the best categories are in the people, second part. A lot of people are saying that. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I'm sure that they are. However, as we traditionally do, we are going to be starting out with amount of baseball. Yes. And so it is, you know, wonderful for me to start this off in, in such a way with this particular film because, man, oh man, when you look at it, this movie has very little baseball in it. It's not a ton of baseball. It's really like watching it the first time, I was like, oh yeah, there's baseball in it. And then the second time, I was like a, the coach with the stopwatch being like, it's sure taken a long time for us to get to where we need to go here. Yeah. Because, you know, like at the beginning, we get some clippings over the title sequence, which even in my like very, very, very liberal um, inclusion of things isn't baseball. That becomes much more a, a consideration of Bill Lee's career and alternatively a consideration of how much photoshopping people's faces onto other people's faces has come since 2016. Indeed. Yes. Yes. It teaches us so much. I had the thought not so much about seeing the photos of Josh Duhamel as Bill Lee, but I was like, does hearing actual Joe Castiglione count as amount of baseball? And I was like, Almost, uh, but no. Yeah. Like, if he's not calling a baseball game, I don't think so. If he's just talking about a baseball player, it doesn't count. And then you factor in the fact that within the rest of the movie, you know, you might be able to pick out individual, like, moments that can stand out. But we're really looking at, like, kind of four moments of baseball. And two of them are animated largely. And that's not nothing, but it also doesn't feel like quite the same. I completely agree with you. I was thinking about, have there been any other movies where we've had to weigh in on this particular problem, which is if it's a live action movie, but there are cartoon sequences how much do those count for in terms of amount of baseball? And I feel like it counts, but it doesn't count for as much. It's kind of like hearing baseball on the radio or seeing it on a TV or something like that. It counts for like 60% as much baseball as if we oh, were seeing I might go real than that. live baseball. For me, it's 60. I thought it was used extremely well. well but yeah i don't know there's just something about it that given the fact that there's so little baseball elsewhere that made it sting a little more mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but aside from that we do get towards the the end of the film or at the very end uh when we get a little card that sort of says that bill lee has continued pitching you know into the present day we do get to see him, actual Bill Lee, like much older, you know, from whenever they shot that foot, you know, the mid 20 teens sometime that he's, we see him throwing a pitch. We see him connecting with a ball, swinging it. And, and there's something really lovely about that amount. So I almost want to like juice it a little more there because it, it seemed nice. Well, I've always said that an actual baseball player in a baseball movie, in a fictional baseball movie, is good for like a little 
extra amount yeah. of baseball. So I agree that that is that a is dab of spice. Uh, you, know, you know, like. 112 yeah. percent amount of baseball for for the actual time that we do get bill lee yeah and and i feel like there. so the the main sequences are sort of like the first time that he goes to play with the senators yeah that's kind of the big one yeah and then there's him pitching bp to quote manny moss we'll get there friends but like Neither of them those cliffhangers. Yeah, um, <laughs> neither of them are particularly complex sequences. No, they're really not, and they're not just from like a storytelling point that maybe I can go into a little bit more in part two. <laughs> <laughs> Way to tease that storytelling yeah, tool, exactly. Um, but just the fact that it doesn't, even when we're watching baseball, like very, like it, it only barely feels about baseball. Weirdly, mm-hmm. the games don't seem to matter. That that much um, yes yeah and we're I mean, not that accurate. concerned about what's going to happen and so it makes it a little less uh flavorful yeah i just also want to note there's a small amount of baseball on the radio when he's at the bar but that's really the only even slight thing to kind of like juice the amount of baseball in this and what i want to say and this We'll get into other categories, but what's obvious about this film to me is that this is an indie film. Like, it has a lot of big or recognizable names and great performances. For and sure. Like, pretty good production values for an indie. It looks pretty good. But it clearly doesn't have a high budget. Absolutely no pun intended for Bill Lee. And baseball scenes take a lot of time to film, and they need a lot of shots. Yeah. And this film wasn't going to be able to do a flashback to Fenway. Like, that's clearly not in the budget. And I think they made really, really smart choices with what they had to be able literally to tell the story with the baseball facilities they were going to be able to get and with the time that they had to shoot. So that's some sort of like storytelling props that they were able to tell a baseball story coming up with creative solutions in the cartoons to you know but it is sort of to the expense of having more baseball in the yeah. movie the one in that one large part of the first game with the senators large in terms of like percentage of baseball that's in the movie there is some really good footage of some of the other people on the team fielding in like just like a really appropriate feeling level of averageness yes. of just kind of being agree. like some kind of like middle-aged dudes who you know like they can make a double play happen but like it's kind of awkward and it looks like it probably hurt also yes 100 percent. i'm I, I, I wonder if you're thinking of the same shot that i'm thinking of the guy who turns the double play he like flops on his stomach to stop the ball and then he flips it to the second baseman yeah and it works yeah he gets the runner but like it just when you're used to looking at major league baseball players do that same thing it l- looks like competent but in no way slick yeah So I have an appreciation for some of those choices, like, and what they yielded as well. That said, amount of baseball-wise, it's really hard for me to think of this as anything other than a 30, really. Oh, wow. Yeah, I just don't think there's that much. You know... I think I'm going to stick with my score, which was 40. I okay. know that there's not a lot. but 40 just seemed kind of high to me. I agree. I feel like it's on the 35 side of 40. But I just think with like 
two real baseball sequences and some other little amounts of baseball sprinkled in and the 60% that you get from the two cartoon sequences, it feels like more than a 30 for me. Okay. And I'm going to stick I'm going to stick with the 30. We can we can good cop bad cop this one. Excellent. Great. <laughs> so our next tool is baseball accuracy. And there's a lot that this movie gets right, which makes sense coming from a director who is a baseball documentarian. Sure. But it also plays pretty fast and loose with Bill Lee's biography, considering that it claims that, quote, most of this actually happened. Yeah. So it's worth pointing out that the entire subplot with his divorce and him losing his kids and the way that divorce happened is fictionalized. Very strange. Yes. I listened to a few interviews with Lee, um, but this one on the abstract athlete was my favorite one that I listened to. And he pointed out uh, contemporary interviews, I should say. Obviously, some of the older Bill Lee interviews are classics. So he pointed out, discussing this film in particular, that he was not divorced and released in the same year. And of the film's choice to do that, he said he wanted to call, quote, a 15-yard penalty because I call that piling on. (laughs) He also said, quote, I have only not been married for about 11 days of my life. I got divorced from my first wife on December 31st and eloped to Jamaica on January 8th. And, he clarifies, quote, that girl is not responsible for the demise of the first girl. <laughs> he goes on to say that also, yeah, this basically the same thing was true of his third marriage, that the third girl was not responsible for the demise of the second girl. And yeah. he uses the word demise every time, like... As if not being married to him was death. <laughs> I love oh. Billy so much, but he says some stuff. Yeah. Um, I, it's funny, too, because, like, I mean, I have a copy of the book. I hadn't sort of was skimming it in preparation for this because I didn't have time to read the whole thing. And in the book, he talks about getting fired and, like, going home to his wife. Yeah. Yeah. It's specifically like it's right there. It mentions that. His wife at the time, which was Pam, quote, bounced right back from the news and that picked my spirits up. And he goes on to talk about how this is in his book, The Wrong Stuff, um, that she didn't much like being identified as, quote, Mrs. Ball Player. So she was kind of like, oh, cool. Well, if I don't have to hang out with the baseball wives anymore, then yeah. that's great. <laughs> He also wasn't immediately directionless. A radio station had offered him a job almost instantly doing a sports broadcast, which he said, quote, turned out to be fun. And he also specifically mentions in his book that one of the nice things about being released is that he got to spend a lot of time with his kids and have fun with them that first summer. He was like, this was one of the sort of make lemonade out of lemons thing is like i got to spend a lot of time with my kids and that's just very different from the character depicted who over the course of the film needs to learn how to actually be there for his kids yeah it's it's really 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 different and then you know there are some other things in terms of like how the job search kind of played out in terms of like the door being shut, sure, but that it was like a little bit more of a dance between various parties to get there instead of just kind of like the door was immediately irrevocably shut everywhere. 
it just like I don't know. That's just another one. It maybe is less of a thing than some of the personal details that that were just discussed, but still feels like kind of relevant given the fact that this search comprises so much of the movie. Yeah, completely. And, I, and I'm not convinced that they substituted it with a more interesting thing but you know maybe they knew that they were only going to be able to tell a story with a certain kind of budget so you can't suddenly have a scene on like david letterman or whatever like you can't you can't see him like necessarily like having like the big hank aaron scene and the i don't i have no idea but like it's weird yes yeah so but maybe it's but maybe it's a budget thing yeah, which is, I'm sure, something that we will continue to discuss in other categories <laughs> later. Yeah, it's in his book, he talks about a number of times that, you know, either his friend sort of working as his agent, kind of as we see depicted in the movie, had reached out to a club and the club had called him back and he'd talked to a few people, but that it always ended with them being like, cool, cool. So yeah, like we need a lefty and we'll call you back. And then just never getting back to him that that happened a few times. And the events of the tryout with the giants that are shown towards the end of the movie didn't happen the way that it does in the movie. So according to the book, this is something that Eric had just referenced Lee spent the offseason getting into excellent shape, sort of hoping to make a run at 1983. And some Atlanta scouts saw him throw. And so he got a call from Henry Aaron, who was by that time an executive in the front office. Um, but it sort of followed the pattern of the other stories he tells, and they never called him back. And eventually there was sort of a confrontation that he goes into in his book. But anyway, once that was done, he went out to Arizona to connect up with a friend who was with the Padres, Dick Williams. And in his book, he doesn't mention that it was specifically a tryout with the Padres, but uh, his friend Dick Williams told him that he had tried to advocate for Lee, but that his GM, that is Williams' GM, said, quote, we can't touch you. And his friend went on to say that if he ever said as much, he had, he'd have to deny it. So he was basically like, I'm telling you this, but I can't have ever told you this. Yeah, which there's sort of a moment like that in this when when he goes to there the yeah. Giants camp in Arizona towards the end of the film. Before that, in the movie, the way that it's depicted for people who maybe haven't seen it, is he just writes letters to all the clubs, first off just the National League clubs because he wants to keep batting, and then he expands out, but it becomes clear like nobody's responding to him at all, except I think Pittsburgh writes him to say no, yeah, just to let him know via letter. And even when we get to the Giants camp thing, like it feels a little bit like oh, was this really like the tryout that the agent said it was going to be? Something's funny. And there's two coaches who basically like one of them seems to represent the kind of like party line, like you're never going to work in baseball. It doesn't matter how talented you are. It doesn't matter what you do. Like it's going to happen. And then another guy is like, hey, just so you know, (laughs) this is something that many people have agreed on. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I don't think that Bill is wrong in his opinion that he was blackballed. 
I'm not sure it was a conspiracy. It could have been, but I could also just see it like it's only 30 teams. So 30 teams can easily decide that like they don't want to have to deal with his unorthodox and sometimes hot-headed behavior, yeah. given that he's 35, right? They're just like, we don't want to deal with this anymore. And yeah, I mean, I don't think that he was necessarily like awful. Like I'm sure that he would have been like still useful to people at the same time. He's like an injured, aging pitcher whose best years are probably in the rearview mirror. And so, like, it becomes a risk-reward thing with someone who has a reputation. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, yeah I, I feel you. Yeah. It, it, it sort of reminds me of that off-season when nobody was signing free agents. And it's like, was there actually collusion, i.e., an agreement or did everybody just did 30 teams, which is not that many individual entities actually just look at the market and be like, Oh, it's going to be to our advantage to not sign anybody for a while. You know? So two bills, recent excellence in this film, when they're writing letters to some of the national league teams, Bill's daughter pipes up and says, are we going to tell them that you had the best ERA on the team and were second in games pitched. And I very much appreciate Bell's daughter knowing his stats, but they are wrong. <laughs> Even if we make them about 1981, when Lee had a very good 2.94 ERA in a swingman role for the Expos. So that would be the third best ERA in that bullpen after Jeff Reardon and Woody Fryman, and not as good as starter Bill Gullickson at 280. Games pitched is also, well, yes, he was second in appearances, but that's with 88 innings pitched in a swingman role. And as someone who knows how to cherry pick a stat that is statistical cherry picking from Billy's daughter. <laughs> so He also mentions more than once, I think, that he had 17 win seasons for three consecutive years, which is pretty cool. I almost feel like he undersells it ever so slightly because those three years were his first three years sort of reliably being used as a starter. The four four years that he had pitched prior to that, I think he had like a combined total of nine starts. He was almost exclusively in relief. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the exact amount, but yes, it is true and wonderful that Bill Lee won 17 games three years in a row. That is 1973 to 75. I feel like in terms of repeat stats, it's not quite as magical as when K. Davis hit 247 four years in a row, but it is more impressive of an individual feat than hitting 247. Uh, that said, his ERA over those three years... Uh, where he won 17 games, was 2.75, then 3.51, and then 3.95, with an ERA plus of 146, 111, and 105, which is an excellent showcase of the usefulness of pitcher wins as a skills indicator. (laughs) (laughs) Looked like they were all good seasons, um, and he actually lost the fewest games that last year. 
Also interesting is his, which I think that the movie does a pretty good job of showing mostly, at least in a way that doesn't seem deeply to contradict. There is that bit where he's like reluctant to throw a fastball at the Senators game because he's only got so many silver bullets left in the chamber, which is like a fine joke. Um, but the fact that, you know, like he was always like a control guy and the fastball was never his thing to begin with right. his his career k per nine is 3.3 it wasn't even really a strikeout guy yeah. yeah definitely of the philosophy of like why try to get someone out in three pitches when you can try to get them out in one pitch totally i am remembering off the top of my head i don't have a note about this one of the interviews that i think is in the ken burns baseball documentary where he's asked what his best pitch is and what's great is he answers that by saying, my best pitch is a strike, <laughs> which is fantastic. But then he talks about it being a two-seamer, um, for, which for him was really a sinker. And he talks about, like, then they're just, they're going to roll over on it and it's going to be a ground ball. You know, right. the shortstop's going to throw it to the first baseman and one away. So, two- I think it's in Ken Burns where he's like... But then they notice that, and then you do this, and then you do this, and then you do this, and then you go for the fastball, and I don't have a fastball. Yes, yes, yeah. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, it's so oh, good. Incredible. He's the absolute best. Uh, this feels like as good a time of any for me to read this fantastic thing that he also said in the Abstract Athlete podcast interview, talking about himself as a pitcher. He said, quote, everyone ran up to the plate to hit against me because they thought I was an easy mark but they failed to realize that I was smarter than them. That's why they call them hitters. <laughs> and then he went on to say, their job is timing and my job is to upset that timing, which is smart. Yeah, yeah. I love it. I love him so much. So to the point of his arsenal, in the cartoon narration of what happened in the 1975 World Series, one important inaccuracy, Lee did not throw a curveball to Tony Perez. He True. threw. An Ephus, baby. A bloopy little bloop. Eric is a noted Ephus fan, so I knew that this would be exciting I'm to him. an enthusiast. I'm going to work on that one. Yeah. E-fan, but like with a PH. <laughs> <laughs> so Lee had a lot of pitchers, as we've been talking about, a sinker and a slider, a curve, and sometimes a screwball. But the Ephus was sort of his signature pitch, probably because not many other pitchers used it. That would be my guess, as opposed to that he used it more than other pitches. But he called it a Leafus, which is, of course, adorable. Oh. And according to an article by Michael Clare on MLB.com, backup catcher Bob Montgomery said that they, quote, made it pretty clear to Bill that Tony was to see none of those pitches, period, <laughs> meaning no. Ephus pitches. But Bill threw one anyway. Yeah. Ephus? Ephus. That's great. You know, he originally wanted to go to forestry school. Like, he's like really, so I don't know, that just adds like a layer to that. One thing about just, what, so while we're still on the 1975 World Series, right. I there was something the about the depiction of it, um, and I don't mean this to be too much of a storytelling thing, but I, I feel like the way that the story is told, and like, I don't know the sides of the various arguments and, you know, the the blame game that goes around for like why that game was lost. I'm sure that there are probably many different perspectives of it, but I do feel like this 
tells a story of him kind of like blowing it in the 1975 World Series. Which is unfair. Which is deeply unfair because he was actually like kind of great for most of his time in the World Series. He went into the ninth inning of game two, having only given up four hits and one run. Then he got pulled after Johnny Bench hit a double, um, and that started like comeback momentum, and like the Red Sox ended up losing game two. But he pitched a great game. He gave up like five hits with one earned run in like eight innings or 8.1 innings. And similarly... In game seven, yeah, he gave up that big home run to Tony Perez, sure, and that sucks, but like he pitched shutout baseball for five innings before that, and the Red Sox were still up after that home run. Totally. Like when I, he left the game, the Red Sox were still in the lead. Yeah, yeah. Although the tying run was weirdly that Ken Griffey senior Yep. Which he walked him on four pitches and it was his only walk of the entire game yes and then he came around to score so yes but but yeah the point still stands and also like he wouldn't have even faced tony perez if it weren't for the fact that pete rose sliding into second broke up the double play that was like there and um denny doyle like was not able to make the throw as a result which like it's just like it was it was like right there (laughs) yeah You know, yeah. that's something I think a lot of Boston fans would agree on. <laughs> they would they would completely agree on it. But I, but I don't know. I feel like he actually, I, I don't have the numbers now, but like if you look at his stats for the World Series, you're like, man, he did a good job. <laughs> yeah. Just needed to be said. I don't know that the film depicting that is totally accurate. I think it lies by omission a little bit. I agree. And I feel like it's a little strange since it should be the movie's job to hype Bill Lee a little bit. And it's, yeah, (sighs) kind of unfair to him, does not give him his due. In terms of another thing for the Red Sox that was right there, let's talk a little bit about Bill Lee calling Red Sox manager Don Zimmer the gerbil. This (laughs) deserves some diving in on. It's such a... It's such a great name. Yeah. So their feud started when Lee questioned some of the pitching management decisions. So Lee started calling him the gerbil. His nickname had been Popeye and Zimmer didn't like the rebrand. So in response, he banished Lee to the bullpen. And then when Lee's good friend Bernie Carbo was traded to Cleveland, uh, more on him in a little bit, Lee left the team for a few days before he came back. It's kind of like the first iteration of the thing that we see him do at the start of this movie, Spaceman, that is referenced in that first locker room scene. So, again, this is 1978. And for people who might need a refresher on how the season ended for the Red Sox in 1978, they were up 14 games on the Yankees Ooh. in early August, but... Then they had a kind of a rough month, which meant that when they met the Yankees for a four-game series, they were only four games up on the Yankees by that point. And of course, the Yankees won the first three games. Reportedly, Carl Yastrzemski begged Zimmer to let Lee start, since Lee had a good track record versus the Yankees, but Zimmer continued to hold his grudge and refused. And instead, he started Bobby Sproul, who had just come up from the minors, and Sproul was shelled. So, of course, 
Then the Yankees and Sox were tied at the end of the season and had to play a tiebreaker game, which the Yankees won by one run because of Bucky bleeping Dent. But maybe they would have never been there because of Don the Gerbil Zimmer if, for example, he had let Lee pitch in the starting rotation instead of making him pitch out of the bullpen. Yeah. Just to hypothesize. He, yeah, no, he was really he was real good against the Yankees. Uh, it does not make sense. So there's any number of tangents that we can go on here. And one that I would like to go on very, very quickly is Bernie Garbo. Yes. And so, you know, in this cartoon, just as an example, they do show Bernie Garbo stealing a squad car and going on a drunken spree. I could find no record of I could this. find no record of that either. Yes, and important the, uh, make them up, I think, on the part of this movie. And the, the animation does at times have a slightly gonzo style to it. It seems like very counterculture, like drug informed at least and yet a lot of the sort of abstract stuff is is clearly abstract and this just seemed like a just kind of like weird make them up that i i don't know just worked in such a way that i ended up googling it because i was like wait did that really? i did so many googles i was like you know bernie carbo police bernie carbo cop car <laughs> however that is not to say that Bernie Carbo did not have a stuffed gorilla because he sure did. He sure did. A gorilla by the name of Mighty Joe Young that he took around with him for some time. How did uh, Bernie get this gorilla? Well, it's funny you should ask that. It was a gift from Scipio Spinks. Honestly, had... one of the best names in the history of the human race. Incredible, right? Yes. Oh my God, it's stunning. And just like reading it is equally stunning to saying it. Yeah. <sighs> Scipio Sphinx. Anyway, he had picked it up in the gift shop of the Marriott Motor Inn in Houston for his daughter while he was visiting, playing for the Cardinals. And he dressed it in a Cardinals Bat Boy outfit and like took him everywhere, making jokes like, yeah, I cut the gorilla off after one drink because he like goes wild, like that kind of stuff. And um, I think some players probably thought it was charming. Some were very annoyed. Bob Gibson apparently, like, ripped its nose off. And uh, that I want that story to be true so much. It just sounds very true. It just feels <laughs> yeah, true. You can just see it happening. And uh, eventually, he gifted it to Carbo. Did you also research the gorilla? I did. I did. Yes. My favorite <laughs> anecdote is that he would put him in the middle seat in planes. Oh, that's good. You know, so smart. What my favorite anecdote maybe was is I found an article in the Lowell Sun by Chaz Scoggins, also no slouch of a name. True. And he relays a time in it that Louis Tiant was sort of in a like religious phase and was dressing all in white as a part of that. And one day on a flight, Carbo apparently dressed up mighty joe young the stuffed gorilla in white as well and tion was like are you making fun of me like what is that like that i don't look like that that's and like thought he was being mocked and so like the next day louis tion set the gorilla on fire oh my god <laughs> uh 
I have no news of the gorilla's recovery or if it met its demise. Yes, it uh, (laughs) sounds like that would lead to the demise of the gorilla. Which, to be clear, everybody, does not mean that Bernie Carbo divorced the stuffed gorilla. It is, uh, I, I think that it probably just like went right up yep. if it got set on fire yes. yeah <laughs> that would be my guess oh, so good there is reference in the cartoon to the buffalo heads this was the name of the group for lee carbo fergie jenkins rick wise and jim willoughby and they I, were just known for staying out late and being general goofballs and i read somewhere that fergie jenkins came up with the name because buffalo head was like yet another nickname for Zimmer. Oh, what I read was different, which is that Don Zimmer called Fergie Jenkins a buffalo for being, quote, the stupidest animal that ever was, and that Lee calling Zimmer the gerbil was in retaliation to that. Oh. That's what I read. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because, like, I feel like you can, you know, and I, I don't mean this in an insulting way, but, like, you can look at a picture of Don Zimmer and have the gerbil in your head or buffalo head in your head. And I feel like you'd be like, yeah, I see that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. A little <laughs> bit of a Rorschach test, yeah, except for exactly. with Don Zimmer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but Lee was very distressed when his buffalo head friends were dismantled and one by one traded away. Here are some things that he did when different members of the buffalo heads were traded. Mm-hmm. Left a burning candle on Zimmer's desk. Refused to show up for the 1978 team photo. Ripped his telephone from the wall at home and vowed never to play again for the Red Sox. When given a $533 fine for walking off the team, Lee asked them to make the fine $1,500 and give him a couple more days off. That, that's one of my favorite stories. And when he came back, he was wearing a shirt that said, Friendship First, Competition Second. Literally, Bill Lee was there to make friends. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, he's the best. So this is a little bit of a sidestep away, but I like this feels like the right place to talk about how Eric Gagne's in this movie. Yes, he is. As well as a producer. I think he helped fund the film. He's from the Montreal area, actually from Masquouche, which I think it's funny in the movie. They're like, oh, yeah, that's a nice place. <laughs> But um, he also plays the bartender. Yes. Um, of course. It's very funny. Kanye being one of the the great stars of the HGH era. <laughs> but like, <laughs> I mean, such a such an incredible closer. I was looking at like some of his some of his stats, like around the 2003 Cy Young stuff. That like a year that he oh, had yeah. a year that he had 55 saves uh, from 55 save opportunities. A FIP of 0.86, and ERA plus of 337, and a K for nine of 15 during this time that he was working on what would end up being a, I, be, I think it's still the record, 84 consecutive saves. So prior to the 2007 season, like before things started sort of like really shifting in a different direction, he had a period of time where he had 161 saves in 168 save opportunities. It's a record that could be broken. Yeah. It's not like, oh, you'd have to pitch a third no-hitter in a row, but it is hard to imagine it being broken. 
In terms of the other cartoon baseball sequence, this is the sort of we were all high and played the best baseball of our lives cartoon sequence. I know he's supposed to be high, but in this, he's batting and playing in the outfield and pitching. Like, did he come in in relief? I know he did also play as a position player with Longay, although that was actually first base, according to his book. But yeah. yeah, that was another, that was a moment that I was like, hmm. Also, either Dick Dennis or this movie fundamentally misunderstands that players who have been big leaguers end up going to the minors all the time later in their careers and coming back up as role players or for injury. Yeah. Yeah, it's there's there's a few. There's also like, does this film suggest that they played baseball throughout the entire winter in Canada? <laughs> I kind of feel like that's how the timeline works, but yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Not to like be too mean to uh, the spaceman Lee, like one one of the one of the arrows in his quip quiver, but there is the mention that he enjoys quite a bit pointing out that Don Gullett is not contrary to Sparky Anderson's expectations in the Hall of Fame and kind of like does it in a na-na-na sort of way. And it could be that this veers a little bit into storytelling and I have maybe a couple of similar things to maybe maybe possibly even make a point. Stay tuned. But the, the thing is like, yeah, Don Gullett isn't in the Hall of Fame, but he does have... 113 career ERA plus and 17.7 F4 over his nine-year career, as opposed to a 108 ERA plus and 18.5 F4 in Bill Lee's 14-year career. And he also has three World Series rings. So, like, I don't, I don't get the mocking of Don Gullett. Well, at least one can say that he's not punching down. <laughs> That's true. That's but true. What I, what I do have to say is having listened to a good number of Bill Lee interviews, he probably would not like the quoting of ERA plus and F4 <laughs> oh, in the yeah. making of points. Yeah. Calls them like cyber metrics or something yeah. where you're like, way to go, dude. <laughs> there are ways when I was listening to Bill Lee that I was like, he reminds me of my dad. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, even if you take that away, it's like, Don Gullett, like, had a pretty good career. Yeah. Like, one could argue maybe better than he deserved to be in three consecutive World Series winning teams. It was a good team. You know yeah. what? Those were good teams. Those were good teams. So, another thing... That is like a direct quotation from Bill Lee that appears in this movie is, I've always been in favor of drug testing in sports. I like to test them all, um, which is a paraphrase of something that Lee purportedly did say. But I think it's less funny than his other joke on the topic, which I have. I know I've heard his actual voice say, which was when asked about mandatory drug testing, he said, I've tried just about all of them, but I wouldn't want to make it mandatory. Which is so much funnier, in my opinion. So perfect. Yeah, so I agree. perfect. It is also accurate that fans would throw drugs at Lee, which he attests in the very opening minutes of this movie. Um, in a fantastic 1980 interview in High Times, he says that, quote, the fans would throw little tinfoils of hash at me. 
It was nice. It was kind of like the hats going to the matador. Bravo. Good game. (laughs) (gasps) Oh, I love it so much. Oh, we haven't really talked about this, but uh, apparently Bill Lee got the name Spaceman. The story's like not as good as I want it to be. And the the version that I read was from this really great piece that John Lott wrote for The Athletic, where early in his career, there were reporters that were like coming like to his locker and it was blocking John Kennedy's access to his own locker. He's a third baseman. And while he was waiting for the reporters, he heard someone mention like astronauts or something and he was like we have our own spaceman over there like referring to lee and like thus it was born i just thought it was going to be like a cooler origin story i have to say on one of the podcast interviews that i listened to he explained the origin of it was it completely different and it was incomprehensible i'm going to (laughs) be honest with you so i was just sort of like it, he, I think he went into great detail about what happened in the game. I think it might have been something like that. Yeah. So, so he talks. It was almost like the aristocrats or something like that. <laughs> like he talked for a very long time about a lot of stuff that then didn't end up being remotely tied to the moniker of the spaceman. And then at the end, he was just sort of like, yeah. So then after the game, this guy was like, we call him the spaceman. It was something like that. So. I kind of believe that. But I think that's in the same, the yeah. abstract athlete interview that was my favorite of the interviews that I listened to. So if anybody is curious, look that one up and see if you make more sense of it than I did. Sometimes it's not a whole lot clearer in print. like, And I think it's be- that's the persona that that he is and also has seen people embrace. And I think like, you know, leans into or is ready to display yeah and um you know there are parts in that thing where he talks about like how he's like personal friends with friedrich nietzsche and like things like that where you're just sort of like oh bill classic spaceman absolute best (laughs) to return to the tryout with the giants that never quite happened undrafted college kids are not going to be hitting with the big league club in spring training I was immediately like, what? That makes no sense. But I reached out to my friend, Chris Welsh, host and analyst on many a podcast, including in this league, Prospect One. He's on the Fantasy Pros Baseball Pod. He's the best. He's on CBS. So he is, for folks who might not know him... uh, Host of many a podcast. Host of many a podcast. He's on Twitter at is it the Welsh? And he's an absolute prospects guru and he lives in Arizona and has been to a million and one spring trainings and fall leagues. And I was just like, if this ever, ever happened. So many honorifics. It's like an Assyrian king or something. He is. That's how I feel about Chris Welsh. I was like, if this ever, ever happened, Chris would know if it ever happened that undrafted college kids are hitting with a big league club. And he was basically like, no, there's a 0% chance of <laughs> that ever happening. The aristocrats. <laughs> he did grant that maybe in the 80s there could have been a tryout scenario, but that it's not realistic to now was his takeaway. Hey, uh, yeah, it definitely, it, he seemed like a drafted person from the way that everything played out. Yeah, except, except the coach specifically says, we're going to have you throw BP to some of our college hitters and build up their confidence a little bit. 
And then the kid is wearing an Arizona jersey. He's not wearing a Giants uniform. So it's hard to know. He's drafted out of college. For sure. If, quote, Manny Moss, the son of Maury Moss, was some kid who never made the majors and isn't showing up on searches. But one look at this kid in his Arizona shirt. And I was like, this is Barry Bonds. So Barry Bonds would have been at Arizona State University at the time. Bonds graduated from ASU in 1986. So if this is 1983, the year after Lee was released, he would have been there. It's Bonds. Also, one of the coaches talking about him says his attitude has got about as much bite as his bat. It's Bonds. Um, (laughs) This little anecdote, apparently when he was at ASU, Bonds was not well-liked by his teammates for being self-centered and inconsiderate in the words of his coach and at one point he was suspended for breaking curfew but his teammates all voted to not let him back on the team even though (laughs) he was far and away the best player because he was Barry Bonds so yeah I was like oh it's Barry Bonds Barry Bonds would have been in college there's no reason why he would have been hitting with the Giants at the time who didn't even draft him yeah. It's the Pirates. What so, gives? Yeah, what gives? It's, yeah, it's all... You want them or don't you? Yeah, I just feel like everybody making this movie should have known better. The only other thing that uh, I think I should keep in this category before moving on is that the character of Dick Dennis that W. Earl Brown plays is Richard Lolly like very heavily influenced by him in part. I wonder if part of the name change thing was to also add the kind of like agent component. Like maybe he became sort of like a a combination of a few people. But like Dick Dennis in this movie even sort of like pitches the wrong stuff. And so like I, I don't think they're being like subtle or like trying to hide that connection there, obviously. And he also, I think during that time, I think in the wrong stuff, even mentions about how Lally was like, did try to make some phone calls on his behalf. I don't know that it was like to the same extent that we see here in the movie. But the one thing that I thought was funny is that in the pitch in the movie, he says like, let me like get you in a room with a tape recorder and a jigger of vodka and we're going to get all your stories down and I'll write it. We'll call it the wrong stuff. I came upon an ESPN interview with Lally by the wonderful human being in front of the podcast, Rob Nyer, and he had asked Richard Lally about working with Bill Lee, and uh, just a, a, a little bit of accuracy here. In that interview, he says that they went into an apartment and drank a lot of tequila, Actually, I think it was like a Paloma because it was tequila and grapefruit. And there were actually four jiggers of it and not the one. Excellent. Excellent work. <laughs> and this was is like, exactly, this is what we're all about in our baseball accuracy tool. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he was like, we're going to get drunk in this apartment and we can't leave until you've told me all of your wacky stories. Because I think that they had like, he had, they'd already gotten pretty far into the book in some sense, I think, but I think he felt that Lee's personality wasn't fully coming through Mm. and so needed that little bit of like extra, like something to kind of make it feel a little more authentically his voice. Yeah. 
I feel like some of the digressions in the book are what really make it feel like Bill Lee's voice. Oh, 100%. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. In terms of Bill Lee's post-MLB baseball career, he did play for the Longoy Senators. I also enjoyed an article on Maritime Pro Ball called Spaceman Lee in Moncton. I don't know if that's Moncton or if that's Moncton anyway. So if anybody wants to look it up, what he did after playing in Longay, playing with the uh, Moncton Mets, they paid him $500 a week plus expenses, which isn't bad for the 1980s, considering... There's a lot more recent players who'd like be just okay with that. Yeah. I mean, I think I was just thinking about how many times in my life I've made $500 a week in the 21st century. Yeah. And for a semi-pro team, I enjoyed this stat. In 1985, he had an ERA of .53 and a batting average of .380. He was living his best life. They won three championships with him. Billy Otani. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's really good. Um, Copyright. Yes, He only left Canada to move to Vermont so that he could run for president as a candidate for the Rhinoceros Party. He is perfect. Right. I think part of the platform was to bulldoze the Rocky Mountains so that, like, part of Canada would get, like, a few extra minutes of sunlight or something like that. (laughs) I I didn't hear that. It might have even been, like, like, Wikipedia or something, but, like, it was very... It seemed very, very tongue-in-cheek. His campaign slogan was, no guns, no butter. Because <laughs> they can both kill you. That was the thought. Um, he also pitched in Cuba, China, Russia, and as uh, I mentioned recently, for the Savannah Bananas. I think that the documentary, in part, has a lot of footage, or, or part of the filming of it was around his time in Cuba. I feel like mm-hmm. I remember yes. reading yes. that somewhere. That is accurate. So... We've been dancing around it. Yeah. It's, and it's it's easy, too. It's a fun dance to play. It's like... It's a Bill Lee Getting dance. a chance to talk about Bill Lee. It's it's like, hey, ya, uh, coming on at the dance. And it you're just like... Totally is. Well, I've got to stop what I'm doing now. Even if both our Excuse love of me, Bill Mr. Lee President. and hey, ya, uh, quite ages us, very specifically. I think that the overall baseball feel isn't bad, even though there are a few kind of obvious mistakes and you know uh, we have not discussed but like Josh Duhamel is a, a plausible athlete I think that helps baseball accuracy but I think that there's enough about his life that has been Shakespeare to you know perhaps make it a better story granted that I can't see I think it's a 40 yeah I could maybe go 45 but I think it's a 40 40 all the way I'm a hundred percent on board for that so we're like, okay, cop, also okay, also cop. Also okay, cop for this particular category. <laughs> and our next category is the score tool. Score tool! Oh, we're doing the score tool now? Yeah, we're going to do the score tool now. Oh my now. gosh, I thought we were doing something completely different, folks. This is this kind of roller coaster ride is what you can expect from us. Um, I think that, you know... The score is actually one of the things I sort of enjoy about this movie. I think the music in this movie is very well done. Um, and I think like the, the actual score itself is simple, but it's effective. There's like a lot of like guitar stuff. 
there's a little bit of uh, druggy sitar mm-hmm. influence mm-hmm. things. And there's uh, there's some real like New England punk rock feel moments. There's some like yeah. '70s rock. There's like a '80s synth at times. And I also think whoever picked the music for this, in terms of just like songs to to license for it, found some real gems. I think. Yeah, I I completely agree. So in terms of the scoring, it's by Billy Mallory. Yes. Excellent work. I really love this. Yeah, it's really nice. It's. It's good and it really supports. Completely. Rather than like kind of trying to drive the boat. Yeah, yeah. A couple of favorites are the sad guitar, Bill Lee theme. Like, for example, it's after the rejection letter from Pittsburgh and after he's been turned away from the Giants. It has real sort of like behind blue eyes vibes. No one knows what it's like to be the bad man. Mm. I love it so much. I'm all ready to have my midlife crisis scored by Billy Mallory. I'm a fan. <laughs> and yeah, in terms of the the songs, I mean, there there were not a ton of like hugely famous hits, like maybe for budgetary reasons. But for me, that was all the more impressive for how well it's curated to perfectly fit the tone and the moments and like the time in human history. Yeah. And it's really fun to have Warren Zevin's song, Bill Lee, in here. Sometimes I say things I shouldn't like... This is right after Bill gets canned from the Expos. Yeah, in a way that feels like well incorporated. Yeah, actually. it's actually in the world, right? So like he's listening to the radio and you he's know. been like released, and the the news is kind of getting out, and like a a Montreal DJ sort of dedicates his song to him, and you're like, yeah, I buy that. Yeah, yeah, he's like, this goes out to Bill Lee, and a couple of others that I really liked were Dream Rocker by Tommy Rock. Looking for the silver lining, reaching for the stars, and Streetcar Love by White Eyes. Oh, I think some of the ones that I picked that I liked the most are, are different ones, which I think it just goes to show how good the music really is. I really liked... Crazy Man by Josephus. I'm sorry, sir, I'm sorry, please, but you, I can't believe. I know my woman like I know my hand, and one true love is me. Elise Weinberg singing Your Place or Mine. I wake up in the morning and I'm cold in hand. Slim so much the night before I can stand. And I really liked... Jeff Cowell singing Lucky Strikes and Liquid Gold. Mm. In the morning All the trials Remembering those red bar lights Like, this soundtrack kind of slaps. I think it's great. It's like bop after bop. Yeah. And I sound older in any sort of way. Should oh. we do a TikTok of this? 
No, absolutely not. <laughs> I was thinking bop after bop in terms of like a string of bass hits. Oh. <laughs> Almost like a bloop and a bloop and a bloop and a blast. Yeah. Like that kind of a bop and a bop and a bop and a blast. I don't know. I think I'm a 55 on the score. If you include the music choices, I might be a 60. I'm definitely a 60. For me, the question was, is this a 70? Oh, I just wow. think that the... I think it is a 60, but if anything, the debate for me was between a 60 and a 70. Yeah. And I think the reason that it's not a 70 is that I, I don't feel like it gets to that sort of iconic lifting of the thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe it actually does, right? Like maybe one of the reasons that I enjoy this film so much is because of how much the score does lift it but i feel like i didn't notice it as much the first time mm-hmm. that i watched the movie and then the second time i was like this is perfect it's yeah. almost like seamless and you know it just guides you perfectly through the film but in a way that's not like it doesn't feel that showy right yeah i think that that's exactly right and a number of the songs that we referenced i feel like will be added to future playlists. Like I'm I... going to go 70. What? I'm going to go 70. I think this is really, really excellent work. I'm just I'm just going to go there. You know what? I'm going to go with you so that we can get that score change song. Oh, yeah. So good. Yeah, nice. Cool. So our next tool is acting. And I think there are a lot of good performances in this movie, But I do think that it's a little uneven. Mm -hmm. This movie had me thinking about how a less than 50 grade performance early on in a film can really have an effect on what you think of the quality of the film. I think my least favorite performance might be from the manager at the beginning. So this is not the general manager in the later scene. I think he's good. But the player manager is just kind of at either 60 or zero. Like he's only yelling or completely passive in a way that doesn't even make it seem like he's listening or he's engaged. It's not terrible. It's just it's below 50. And like we're watching the movie for the first time and I'm just like, oh, there are going to be performances like this in this movie. Yeah, no, you've definitely got that. No disrespect to Eric Gagne, but there's a reason that we don't know about him because of his acting. It's true. Um, he he does perfectly fine for the thing that's asked of him here, but it definitely is closer to like that one person playing a nurse in a 50s movie where you're like, what, what was going know? on? Like, what's the story there? Like, how did this person end up on this set because you could just tell that they're not of the same kind of like professional standard of of everybody else in in terms of what they're doing that said i do think that most of the acting is pretty good here i agree um and some of it i just feel like honestly i just think that a lot of these people don't have enough to do Mm. like I don't know. Like, I think about a lot of these characters, right? I think about W. Earl Brown playing this guy who's like his agent, buddy, supporter character who has like a pretty big role in the movie. And I'm like, how does he change over the course of the film? What happens to him? And he does actually, he's great. And he's in a lot of good scenes, but there's not enough that really like 
happens to the character that the actor can sort of like lift and be challenged by and tell a story with. We just sort of see him doing a good job of being this guy that nothing particularly actually interesting happens to him. Yeah. And and I think that that's true of a lot of these characters. And so although the acting is really good, I I think W. Earl Brown is like kind of a genius of an actor. He's but it's like yeah. when people are like, oh, I love this person. I could I could hear them and watch them reading the phone book. Like maybe that's true, but that reading the phone book show probably has a pretty low ceiling. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But in terms of W. Earl Brown, I do especially love the scene where he first proposes to be Bill's agent. And this is maybe my favorite acting moment in the whole movie. His point of view when he gets the good call from the Giants. Yeah. Like the text that he has is sort of nothing particularly interesting. Like he's got some great zingers in this movie that he delivers very well. But... There's this little twitch on his face before he calls over to Bill that is just so much pure immersion in the moment, like absolutely unfakeable. That is so good, right? Like he's so excited that he's trying to sort of collect himself before he calls over to Bill, but not in any kind of a showy way. It's just like, it's so clear that he's genuinely that excited. He's amazing. Yeah. And Ernie Hudson is extremely delightful as Joe on The Senators. And he really, like, I feel like classes up the moments and the scenes that he's in. His not today when Bill says that he usually oh, wears number 37. Yeah, that's Superb. a really good moment. It's so good. And, it's so and, good. and that's a nice, yeah, that's a great moment because then you sort of see him strut off wearing the, the number 37 jersey. Yeah. yeah. That's a very, that's a very fun it's moment. Well, it's well directed as well. The moment's like very well sculpted. Yeah. Again, like my one complaint is like, you've got Ernie Hudson. Yeah. Like, like give him a little more of a story of like things that happened to him over the course of the movie, as opposed to just sort of giving him like an interesting backstory. Right. But just kind of being there. Yeah. And I think that Josh Duhamel is pretty great. I think that, you know, there's some storytelling things, there's some accuracy things, but I think that he does a pretty good job of being believably this kind of like offbeat person who also is a professional athlete. Totally. And also exudes a certain like star power. Mm -hmm. I mean, in a way that is appropriate for someone who just kind of had like a a little bit of a like magnetic, like easy to be fascinated with persona as Bill Lee did. So I think that like he's within that, that like Venn diagram of, of things that make the number of people right for this role, like probably pretty small. Not a ton, but yeah, he's really right for it. Yeah. And I think, I think he's lovely in this. I think he's, he's fun and he's dynamic and he's, he's both dynamic and honest Yeah, and he's spontaneous and he's loose. And a couple of moments that I really was just like, Oh, so good. His point of view as his ex-wife walks out of the room in this is the very first scene with her when she brings the children is so specific and so lovely, really nice, like a moment without any text to it. Mm-hmm. And I think he's great in the scene where he learns that he's losing everything in the divorce oh, yeah. to his wife. I think he's great. Like it's 
it stays contained, but it's very real. Like you can see the personalization for him in his eyes, but it doesn't become showy or actory in any kind of a way, which I think a lot of people would be tempted to do. They would be like, oh, I have this whole movie where I'm playing this thing. Well, then there's this scene. And so like, then I'm just going to really like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. chew the set pieces with it or something. You know, I realized, I mean, I know that he's a huge star and has been in a bunch of blockbuster movies, but I realized I've never seen him in anything before this. And I, I just thought he was really good. I think it's mainly been, I, honestly, the thing that I remember him most from, and I, he would, it would probably break his heart to hear it, um, but he'd be like, yeah, are the, um, and then we'd become best friends and we'd be laughing about it a couple of years later over dinner. I like this plan. I, I mostly just know him from like the Transformers movies and stuff like that, where it's not necessarily the venue to sort of like see what someone's skills are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know he's done a lot of romantic comedies also, which is just not my genre. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if the mics picked that up, but as soon as Helen finished that sentence, there was an ominous thunderclap. It was great. It was perfect. It was absolutely perfect. Oh, I was like, yes, I'm calling in the lightning and the thunder. <laughs> a couple of other performances. I also like Carlos Leal as Gino Lapu and Stefan Rollins as Claude. Uh, those are the two sort of Quebecois players on the Senators who come to recruit Bill. And I liked the Giants coaches of varying points of view. And I liked Peter mckenzie as the general manager also sure my main complaint really not enough sterling k brown look look any amount of sterling k brown is greater than no amount of sterling k brown in a sort of a mathematic sense but after having sterling k brown advertised in the credits and getting all excited 30 grade amount of Sterling K. Brown yeah, is what really, I have to it's say. It's really not that much. Yeah. Again, someone where you're like, oh, this person doesn't have enough to do. And I don't know. That one bothered me maybe I mean, like probably a little he was bit less. shooting for one day. Do you know what I mean? Like probably it was yeah. a situation where they're like, we can't afford to have Sterling K. Brown for more than one day. And I get that. But also. I yeah. Talked much on this podcast about my extreme love of Sterling K. Brown. So. Yeah. And again, like, he's great in it, but, like, you sort of feel like he's, his talents are being wasted. And I just, I, I felt that way for a number of people, especially re-watching it. Totally. You know, like, yeah. you just sort of feel the the need for them when they're when they're on screen, and then you miss them when they're gone. Uh, I, I did think that the, um, the actor who played the ex-wife was quite good in a pretty tricky because of, like, how much storytelling needed to kind of like take place. Like, I thought she was good. I thought that there were some scenes where I really liked what she did and there were other scenes that felt a little flat to me and maybe that was a choice or maybe it was directorial. So where are you at with this? Ah, I think I'm a 55. Okay. Yeah, I think that's what it is overall. I could see going 60, but I think really what it is is a 55. I, I was hovering between a 50 and a 55, but I think... The more that I think about, like, the acting is good and, like, don't punish it because you maybe had some, like, actually non-acting ultimately related problems. Right. Like, actually, that's enough for me to say 55 as well. But I also think that it's fair to be like, well, what is the acting that we receive from this, yeah. right? Like, if, if an actor isn't given something to showcase everything that they can do, again, we've talked about this in many things, like... 
us grading the amount of excellent acting that we receive in a movie is not grading those particular actors. It's just like, you know, what what acting goodness do you get from this movie in watching it? And I feel like it's about a 55 amount of goodness. Yeah, I think I just like there's a world in which I see a much higher score with the same cast. Oh, completely. And, and, And that like bums me out a little bit. Yeah, but I just, I feel like that's the nature of acting, honestly, right? Like, people win Academy Awards because they were given the opportunity to show what they can do, not because they they were a better actor in that film than they are in any other film. It's all about the venue. Yeah. In any case. So, that is it for the first half of our discussion of Spaceman. So join us in the second half of our podcast to hear our other tools. To be continued, buddies.